Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. So we're going to keep going in our series on Luke. And uh, Luke chapter 6, we, uh, I told you I would not get through every verse in the book of Luke. Um, so we were in Luke uh, 5 several weeks ago. Last week I really jumped around. This week I want to take a passage out of Luke 6, and we're also in a series within a series. We're in this five weeks of generosity. And uh, I want to look at a whole teaching Jesus has on generosity. It's about 10 verses long in, uh, in Luke chapter 6. And I want you to see that, that generosity is but a lot more than money. Um, but it certainly it includes money. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. And Jesus uh, says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. All right? Give to everyone who begs from you. Does that not sound like insane advice, by the way? Does that not sound like crazy advice? Like, why would the creator of the universe put something like that in his word? Right? And uh, it just sounds crazy. But before we go any further in this, let's anchor this verse in its context. Because like I said before, generosity is a lot bigger than money. And sometimes we take some of Jesus' teachings about money and we just pop a verse and we just look at it. You've got to put it in its context. You've got to see that this is about much more than just money. It certainly includes money. And it certainly includes money. That's what Jesus is talking about in that verse. But let's anchor this in its greater context. If we go back to verse 27, uh, let's, uh, let's catch up from the beginning and we see this. But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your toque either. Well, a tunic, I guess, is what it should be, but we'll Canadianize it just a bit. And then we're back to verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. So we see that this is about more than money. This is about a generous perspective. It's about a generous uh, lifestyle, generous towards our enemies, generous to those who do bad to us, generous with, what we, with our material goods. It's about more than money. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and give to everyone who begs from you. This is not natural. Is it true that this is not natural? I mean, everything Jesus is teaching us here goes absolutely, I mean, what he's teaching here is about as opposite as you can get from what we do naturally. Is that not true? I mean, what he's teaching here has got to be some of the hardest stuff you could ever do. Our natural human instinct is not to do any of these things. Uh, I remember one time driving my bike home uh, from church at the end of the day, and it was winter time. The, the path was still clear enough that I could drive, but there was snow on both sides. It was cold. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm often biking back and forth uh, to church, and uh, so I was biking home one night. And often, you know, you meet people on the path. And, uh, you know, I always try to, to shout out a cheery greeting before I run them over. And, uh, and then we usually exchange some kind of pleasantry and you keep going. Well, with this one time, particular time, I'm driving on the path. I came up behind these people. I tried to give them lots of advance warning. I said, hey, coming up on your left. Tried to have a cheerful voice about it. Uh, they both dived to either side of the path. So obviously they were a little bit shocked. And, uh, and then as I went past... Uh, the one gentleman actually he cursed me, blankety blank, why is anybody driving their bike in winter? Which, again, fair enough, uh, why would anyone do that? At first it was a bit of a shock, 
It was so, in fact, I'm thankful that it was a shock because it didn't uh, touch any parts of my flesh for just a couple of seconds. I was just kind of in a daze. And so I kept driving. But the moment my human flesh comprehended what had just happened, I mean, it's really a small thing. But isn't it amazing that when someone does something to you, you just immediately want to do it back? Isn't that true? So as a pastor, I just felt like I wanted to turn around and just hug them and hold them. Uh, but actually not. Um, my flesh wanted to wave something in the rearview mirror and yell something sarcastic over my shoulder. It's true. This finger, that's what I wanted to wave. Um, but, uh, and so I drove my bike home, and it was amazing to me how, and, and again, like I said, I didn't do anything like what I wanted to do inside. And I went home, but I took it with me for 15 or 20 minutes into, into supper. And I was really annoyed. I was like, like, how dare that person? I mean, isn't this how we, you know, someone does something to you, it, uh, you want to do something back. It's just, it's just the, the, the truth. You want to say something sarcastic back. You want to say something smart. You want to get them back. And eventually I, I realized, like, I'm, like, this is ridiculous. This really is a small thing. I should be able to let this go. I actually have to take a moment and I have to say, Jesus, I'm going to have to see this from your perspective because for whatever reason, this is just really bugging me. And so I asked for his perspective, and I was, you know, obviously when you go to Jesus for his perspective on things like this, you're hoping he's going to say how he's going to really bring justice to this, to this situation. <laughs> and it never quite works out that way, isn't it true? And so I managed to quiet myself for a moment, and it's interesting when you get Jesus' heart, how different his heart is from our heart. It's totally different. So my heart is like, respond you know, like with like. You do this, I want to do something back the same. You give me anger, I give you anger. You give me disrespect, I want to give you disrespect. The first thing I started to hear in my mind when I asked Jesus to give me his heart for the situation was questions. And the first question that floated into my mind was, I wonder what kind of a day a person has to have to respond like that, to be so angry. And I thought about, uh, you know, I wonder what kind of stresses he must have had in his day. Like that, I mean, I wonder what kind of things could happen. And then the next question that came to my mind was, I wonder what kind of struggles and disappointments this person has had in life. Like what kind of big disappointments? Who knows what's happening in their, that person's marriage or family right now that could be. And then another question came in, and by this point, you kind of know where Jesus is taking you, right? But he's actually getting your heart as you start to get his heart. And then the question comes to you, I wonder what kind of a home this person grew up in, what kind of things were said to them as they grew up by their father, by their mother, these sorts of things. And I don't know this person at all. No idea. But as you begin to get Jesus' heart, there's this generosity of spirit, whereas we look at a person who does something bad to them and say, what a wicked, terrible person. When you get Jesus' heart for your enemies, you realize it's not just that he's telling us, love your enemies in the sense that that's my enemies, that's a bad person, and so, but I'm just going to love this bad person. It's actually that Jesus actually has a generosity of spirit towards people so that when you get his heart, you don't even look at them as enemies anymore. You start to feel love and compassion for them. I wonder what this person has been through. And again, that is not my heart. That's not even close to my heart. My heart did not respond like that. That was, you know, going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what is your heart for this person? This isn't natural to any of us. We want to believe the worst about people. We don't want to be generous toward them and believe the best. And we want to hold on to our goods. We want to judge people's motives and how they do this or that before we give our stuff. This is my stuff. This is what you deserve. But Jesus goes on to say, what is special about being a Christian if you're no different afterwards than you were before? Look at this, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? He's not saying that we shouldn't love those who love us. We should love our families. We should love our spouses. We should love our friends. 
He's not saying that. But what he is saying is, what's so special about that, right? For even sinners love those who love them. What's so special about that? You don't, what do you need God for? You don't need God to do that. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from, to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? If you're only generous where you're getting something back, that's not generosity, right? What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. You don't need God to just live like a human being. So when you gave your life to Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm actually, you, you actually got called to a new way of living. It's totally opposite of how you would naturally, naturally live. So then Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Okay? And then in this passage, now there's many reasons why Jesus would call us to live like this, but in this passage, he gives us two reasons why we should live this way. Okay? And again, no doubt there's other ones. Okay? But I just want to point out to you two reasons why Jesus asks us to live this way. And the first thing we see in this passage is because that is how God, that is what God in heaven is like. And if you look here, they're going to underline that there. Uh, why should we be kind? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. I want you to notice there, that second line from the bottom. He's not just kind to the people who are nice. Our Father in heaven is kind to the people who are ungrateful and who are evil. And Jesus says, one of the reasons I'm calling you to be like this is because that's what he's like. And he is merciful. That's why we are supposed to be merciful. Jesus says, when you gave your life to me, now I'm calling you to live like my Father in heaven lives. See, we are God's representatives on the earth. And the world is never going to get to see what God is like unless we proper, properly reflect his image. Okay? Unless we properly reflect his Im image. And this is what you and I were saved to become. I want to hit on something for a second week in a row. I talked about this last week. But I feel like this is so ingrained in our evangelical, you know, conscience that it sometimes just takes a little bit of repeating to undo it. But we have in, the, in our evangelical context, we, we are really obsessed with this idea that when we got saved, we got saved from hell. Well, amen, we got saved from hell. That's actually a really good thing. And I'm not, I'm not putting that down. But when we think about salvation, we tend to think only what we've been saved from. So when you got saved, you prayed a prayer, now you got saved from hell and you get to go to heaven, that's what salvation is. But you know that God has a much, much bigger plan and vision for your future and for eternity than just that you not go to hell? He didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross because he wanted you to not go into hell and now for the rest of eternity, he doesn't have much of a vision left for you for eternity, but at least he didn't end up in hell. I mean, those of you who are parents, you know this, right? I got four kids. Uh, those of you who are parents, isn't it true that you have a, a, a little bit of a bigger vision for your kids than that they just not go to jail? <laughs> Am I right? I have four kids. I don't lie up awake at night dreaming and going, oh, it's going to be so awesome when Charlie grows up and doesn't go to jail. Wow. <laughs> and just, you know, just really daydream about that. Wow, it'll be amazing. Well, I mean, absolutely. I'll be happy if Charlie doesn't end up in jail and the rest of them too. Okay? And, uh, and hopefully he's not on that path right now. At least, unless he goes for the right reasons. You know, persecution or something like that. Oh, fine. Um, but, uh, which could happen the way things are going. But I, and I don't, I certainly, I would be, I, I mean, I would be sad if they went to jail 
uh, that wouldn't be a good thing. But my, I have a much bigger vision for my kids than that they just not go to jail. I have, I have dreams. I don't have dreams of specific vocations or things that they do, but the kind of people I want them to be, the kind of people, I have dreams of them loving God and loving people and having good character and working hard. I have, I have a positive vision for my kids, not just a negative vision that I hope they don't end up somewhere. And the same is true of God for us. He didn't just send Jesus to die on the cross so you not go somewhere. I mean, that's great. That's amazing. It is really awesome, and we can thank Jesus for that. But he actually died... Uh, for a particular vision of your future and to understand what God wants for your future, it's, it's good for us to go back in the past and see what God intended for us right from the beginning. And then you're going to see where Luke 6 fits into all this. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we'll see God's, uh, one, you know, part of God's vision for us in the beginning was this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so God created us human beings to be in his image, okay? Now, in his image does not mean, like, you know, like some of the new age stuff nowadays that we're, you know, we're like little small g gods and this sort of stuff. He did not make us to be gods. We're not worthy of worship. Angels and stuff will never worship us. He will always be God and we will always be people. Being made in his image does not mean he made us to be gods, but it does mean he made us to be like him in terms of his character and his heart. And so God is full of life, and God is full of joy, and God is full of love, and God is full of hope and purity and goodness, and he made us to be reflections of that, and he's creative, okay? He's creative and full of life and all this sort of stuff. So he made us to be in that image, okay? Not as little gods, but in terms of his character and his heart and how he lives like that, he made us to be in his image, okay? Then sin came along, and sin distorted the image. Now, we're all still made in God's image, but because of sin... The image is distorted and clouded, okay? So we were made to be filled with joy and hope and love and creativity. All these good things are full of life like God is. But because of sin, we've got, we've got impurity and we've got, you know, anger and lust and hate and revenge and all these different things, depression and despair. We've got all these things. The image is distorted and warped. So you can still see we're still in God's image, but the image is distorted and warped. So God sent Jesus to die on a cross okay? Because he wanted to restore us into the image of God. And I'll show you this. This is God's plan for the future. If we go to Romans chapter 8, and I'm not going to read you all of it, but Romans 8 goes really into, in, in depth about this. Paul says this, starting in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What's he talking about there, the revealing of the sons of God? He's talking about the resurrection, okay? At the resurrection, now we're already the children of God, but we haven't been fully revealed because the image is still distorted by sin. At the resurrection, when we get our resurrected bodies and sin and death are, are absolutely done away with, the sons of God in his image, and, and daughters obviously as well, but the creation is waiting for that day with eager longing when we are revealed in that way and the image is no longer distorted because the world is desperate for more of the image of God. Because the more the image of God is reflected on the earth, the better it is for people, for society, for the world. I mean, the more joy and love and hope, don't you think the world needs more of those things? Amen. And the more life and all that sort of stuff? So the creation is actually waiting for eager longing. The more we can have the image of God here on the earth, the absolute, the better. And if we skip ahead just a little bit in that same passage, Romans 8, 29, I'll show you. That he actually, Paul actually uses the word image, just tying this back to Genesis 1. 
But he says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. So in the beginning, God made man, uh, you know, male and female, man and woman, he made in his image. That was his goal. Sin distorted it. In the future, at the resurrection, it's going to be fully restored. We will be fully in the image of God. He's full of life. He has no death or sickness or disease or depression or despair or anger or lust or impurity in him. And so will we be. And it's going to be amazing. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Absolutely amazing. And just to drive this point home how amazing this is, I love that line. Uh, Ken, if you can underline that that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing what it's going to be like to be fully in the image of God. I mean, think about that. I wonder, you know, all of us come here with some level of suffering. That's just our human lot in life in, the, in this age. But some of you have much more. Some of, some of us have a little bit less. But whether it be sickness or relational brokenness or finances or various things that we go, go through, and isn't it true that sometimes when you suffer with something for a long time, what begins to happen to us as human beings when we suffer with something for a long time is we start to ask the question, why? Isn't that true? Why? That's a natural human question. Why, God, do I have to go through this? I can suffer for a little bit of time, and it's okay, I can bear up on it, but if it goes on for too long, what often happens with us is we begin to ask, why? And it's often a why that's maybe a little tinged with bitterness. Why is God not answering my prayers? Why is he not taking this away from me? And one of the things we always have to keep in perspective is this. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing. We have to remember that this lifetime is this long and eternity is forever. And we have to keep in mind that actually there is a day coming when you get your resurrected body and are fully remade in the image of God with no more death and sickness and despair and anger and lust and impurity and all sorts of stuff. When you're remade in his image like that, it will be so wonderful that the worst sufferings you have here, no matter how long, are not worth comparing with that day. And when, that, when you get that perspective, like Paul went through a lot of suffering, when you get that, that perspective, then what it does is it puts the why question in its place. The why question actually often doesn't get answered in this lifetime. And actually, ultimately, it's a legitimate thing that we feel as human beings, but ultimately God doesn't need to answer it right now in this lifetime because the reward that's coming at the end will be more than worth it. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, you say, well, what does all this have to do with Luke 6? I mean, we were in Luke 6. How did we end up on this journey through Genesis and Romans and, and the image of God? Well, Genesis 1 tells us what it was in the beginning. God made man and, and male and female to be in his image. Sin distorted the image. Romans 8 tells us in the future, we're, he's good, he, we're going back to that. We're going to be fully in the image of God, resurrected. It's going to be amazing and glorious, unbelievable. Luke 6 tells us how we live now in the present. So originally God said, I, want, I made you in my image. Sin has distorted the image. Romans 8, in the future, he's going to fix it all. In the present, we're in this now, not yet. We've already received a down payment. That's what Ephesians 1 says. He has put the spirit in our hearts as a down payment of what's to come. So we're not at the resurrection yet. We still have struggles and all sorts of stuff. We're not fully there yet. But the spirit, we have the down payment in our hearts, the spirit. And Jesus says, you need to start living in the image now. That's your calling. When you got saved, you didn't just get saved from hell. You got saved to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so that starts now. And this is how Jesus lives. This is what his heart is like. He loves his enemies. He does good to those who are bad to him. And he is unbelievably, wildly, joyfully generous. Abundantly generous. And we see this again in verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies, as I read before, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful. Why? Because your Father also is merciful. All right? So that's the first reason why we need to live this way, is, that be is because that's how God in heaven lives. But there's a second reason in this passage, and some of you might be like, you know what, I'm not that motivated by the image of God. Well, that's what you're called to. But there's a second thing here too, and this should motivate all of us as human beings. There's also great reward. And he says that in here too. Your reward will be great. When you live the way God in heaven lives, your reward will be great, he says. And I want to look at just a couple of different kinds of reward. The first kind of reward is obviously eternal reward. And I, didn't, I went through the Bible just briefly uh, yesterday. It's unbelievable how many passages in here talk about mansions and crowns and authority in heaven and all this kind of stuff. There is going to be a tremendous amount of reward in heaven for which people, okay? For which people? It's the people who are the kind of people who live like God in heaven lives, who love their enemies, who do good to those who hurt them, who give generously, those kinds of people who live that way store up tremendous amounts of reward. Now think about it. This lifetime is this long. You live that way in a lifetime that is this long. And for all of eternity, there is great reward. You will be so happy you did so. But there's a second kind of reward I want to touch on at a deeper level. And it's one that we often don't think about. But it is really, really important. Did you know that becoming Christ-like is its own reward? Have you ever thought about that? So on the one hand, yes, we want to live this way because there's reward in heaven. But did you know that becoming this kind of person is one of the greatest rewards you can get, period? To become the kind of person who can love your enemies, who can respond good to those who do bad to you, who, is, who does not hold on to your stuff or your money, but is generous with everyone and with the kingdom, to become that kind of a person is its own reward. It's an amazing reward just to be Christ-like. It's the way... He made us to live a generous life like that is one of the greatest prizes of all. You know, this past fall, our leadership team here at church has been doing this little challenge, and, and we've been working on personal generosity. And so every Tuesday morning we meet and, you know, we pray and we discuss, you know, big things for the church. But at the beginning of our meeting, we've been doing this all fall, we've been challenging each other to do little acts of random generosity through the week. And then we start off our weekly leadership team meeting, but before we get to any of the big stuff, we first start by getting little groups and we share what did you, what acts of generosity, you know, little acts of generosity did you do this last week? And then we pray for each other and we celebrate and we've been growing in generosity that way. And it's been a lot of fun. And so uh, one of the weeks, um, it was a Monday, and so the next day we were going to have to share. And so I was under the gun. I hadn't done my act of generosity for that week. So we took the kids, we prayed about it, and we decided, you know, we're just going to drive, we're going to go through, a Timmy's, through the Timmy's drive-through, and we're going to pay for whoever's behind us as our sort of random act of generosity this week. And we're going to pray that it's someone who needs encouragement. Well, the kids were pumped. In fact, I was pumped. It was like, it's so exciting to do generosity. And so we got in the van, and we drove to uh, Tim Hortons, and we all prayed, Lord, maybe someone who needs uh, encouragement behind us. And so we're driving through, someone pulled in behind, and uh, we got to the till, and then we said, uh, you know, we, we want to pay for the people behind us. And everybody was just giddy in the van. And it turned out to be, it, it, you know, it was all of four bucks. We were having so much fun. We were like, that's not enough money. We actually drove to different Timmy's across town and did it again. <laughs> and, uh, but you've never seen so much joy. I mean, it, it's actually addictive, okay? 
I mean, we have, we're actually budgeting it in our budget now because it gets so addictive, you, you can get carried away. You, you can't be that happy. Just wa- I mean, watching a movie is fine. We do that too. And there's all kinds of fun things you can, you, you can do. But there's nothing more fun than being generous. And so you talk about, well, you're going to have reward in heaven or God's going to reward or bless you. Yes, just being that way is its own reward. There's so much joy in being generous people. And of course, then God blesses us and takes care of us too. And the more you are a person like this, it'll change your relationships. It'll change your marriage. It'll change the way you parent. And everything is more blessed when you live this way. Jesus said there's great reward. There truly is tremendous reward. But part of the reward is just being like Jesus. When you're like him, that is amazing in and of itself. Just to be in his image. Now, Jesus goes on to say, more motivation, you create more of what you're like and the people around you. So he says this in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you, okay? Jesus is saying if you, again, this is reaping and sowing. He's not saying here, this is not a formula. It's not, you know, every time you don't judge, you're not gonna get judged. He's not saying every time you, you forgive, you're going to get forgiven back. Um, it doesn't work that way in every single situation. It's a general life principle. If you sow judgmentalism, you're going to reap judgment. And you're, you're going to sow it. If you sow that in your workplace and you sow that in your family, you're going to reap more judgment and more condemnation in your workplace and in your family. You're going to reap what you sow. Jesus says you cannot get away from it. But if you sow forgiveness, you're going to reap that. You're going to spread whatever you're like, you're going to spread into your workplace and into your family and into your friendship groups. And then he says there at the bottom, give and it will be given to you. It's amazing how generosity has a way of get, uh, coming back to you. You know, um, so funny on that, that little Timmy's thing. And it's ridiculous. Like, is it, is it anything to be proud of to, to do an act of generosity that costs you in total like eight or nine bucks? It's no, it's no big deal in terms of did we make a big sacrifice, but the amount of joy we experienced was, was, uh, was amazing. It was so fun. But it's amazing how this stuff does come back to you. You know, it's, it's so fascinating. Just a couple of weeks after we, we did that little act of generosity, uh, LaDawn was going through the, the drive through uh, the one morning, and it was actually a morning she needed some encouragement. And as she's going through the drive through and this has never happened to her before, it just happens that the person ahead of her paid for her thing. I think it was like three bucks. Which again, to a Mennonite, maybe it's a big deal, right? I mean, maybe it is a little bit of a big deal, three bucks. But um, I mean, it's only three bucks. Like, what's the big deal of three bucks? She said, totally blessed her morning. Totally encouraged her. Now again, like I said, this never happened before. Is it any coincidence that this happens just a couple of weeks after we had done something there? Now again, this is not a formula. It's not a formula. But when Jesus says it's going to come back to you, he really does mean it. When you sow, what you sow is what you're going to reap. And I, I, and I just, I, I really believe that. So anyway, um, Jesus caps off this section on generosity with one final statement. He says this, so give and it will be given to you. Now look at this next statement. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. When you live this kind of a life, Jesus says, God, our Father in heaven is going to take care of you and it's going to come back to you. If you sow this kind of a life where you are generous in how you judge people's motives, rather than always judging them negative, you try to see the best in people even when they're bad to you. When you're generous with your 
enemies, when you're generous with your ex-business partner or your ex-spouse or whatever it is, when we are generous with people, and when we're generous with our material goods, Jesus says it is going to come back to you. And again, like I said before, this is not a formula. People sometimes want to turn this into a formula. If you give in this situation, it's going to come right back to you. It's not like that. Think about it like this. Uh, A farmer, let's say, who wants to grow apple trees. He wants to have an orchard. If he plants all of his trees from seed, isn't it true there's no guarantee that every seed he puts into the ground is going to turn into a tree? Isn't that true? So he can put a bunch of seeds in. On any given seed, it's not a formula. Every seed you put in is going to come up and give you X amount of fruit. It's not a formula. And some of those seeds actually won't grow into a tree. It's true. But if he plants his orchard with apple seeds and takes care of them, a whole bunch of them are going to grow into trees. Isn't that true? And every one that turns into a tree is going to give him a lot more back than he put in. Think of it. That is just one seed. You put one seed into the ground. If it grows into a tree, that one seed gives you, over its lifetime, hundreds and hundreds of apples. And in each one of those apples is a whole bunch more seeds that you can plant more trees. It actually never ends. It just keeps bearing fruit and bearing fruit and bearing fruit. That's the amazing thing about a seed. And the same is true when you spend your life planting seeds of forgiveness and generosity and turning the other cheek and seeing the best in people. It's not a formula where every time it's like, well, I should be getting something back because I did that. I should be getting something back because I did that. It's not a formula like that. And that's not the motivation anyway. The motivation is to be like our Father in heaven. But when you plant those seeds, a whole bunch of them are going to turn and you're going to get an orchard eventually. And you're going to reap the benefits in your marriage. You're going to reap the benefits in your family. You're going to reap the benefits in your workplace. And God is going to take care of you a good measure, shaken together, right? Shaken together. It's kind of like uh, any of you who's ever gone, uh, because again, I was trying to think of of Mennonite examples, right? I got Dirks as my last name, so I'm allowed to to do Mennonite examples. But like when we go strawberry picking and and you pay by the basket, you don't just put a handful in there and move on to the next basket. At least I don't. Right? And you're there with your kids, and then they say, uh, I'm done, and you, no, you're not. Right? <laughs> you can get a whole bunch more strawberries in there than that. You're going to shake it. You're going to press them down. They get a little soft on the edges. You're going to pile it up. So you're just barely walking, and they're trying to roll off, right? Running over. Isn't that what you're going to do? Jesus says, you live this kind of life. That's what the Father in heaven's going to do for you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to reap it back. But you know what keeps us from living this kind of a, of a lifestyle is a fear of scarcity. It's a fear of not having enough. I don't want to forgive you because I'm, I'm afraid. I'm letting go of something. That actually hurts. If I forgive you, you don't deserve it. And I'm not going to get justice. I'm not going to give that. I'm not going to let go of my stuff because if I, if I give to that project or if I give to that person who's in need, if I give that Money that I feel Jesus might be saying to me, if I, or if I step out in faith and do that, I'm not going to have enough to take care of myself. I'm, and often what we want is for God to show me the returns on the invest, investment first. Isn't that true? So what, before I give, I just first want to see, okay, God, you know, pay for some bills first, send some money in, and then I'll give. Show me that this person is sorry first, and then I'll forgive, right? Before I'm generous, I want to see some return. But isn't it true that if that farmer who's planting the apple seeds, if he wants to see a return, he can't see a return until he lets go of that seed and puts it in the ground. If he says, I'm not going to plant this seed until I see a few apples, he's never going to plant the seed. 
Because it doesn't work that way. I can't get a single apple from that seed until I absolutely let go of it in faith, put it in the ground, and see if it's going to grow. Now, of course, when we look at that example, some of you might say, well, why would a farmer ever want to just hold on to a bunch of seeds? What good is a bunch of seeds? I wonder how often our Father in Heaven thinks that about us and our worldly goods. Why on earth would we want to hold on to a bunch of seeds? They're not going to last. They're going to rust. They're going to rot. They're going to be gone. They're not going to last for eternity. Why would we want to hold on to a bunch of seeds? But if you let go of those seeds, they're not worth anything in eternity. But if you'll just let go of them with Jesus and you'll plant them, he says the Father is going to give it back to you in spades and you'll be rewarded in addition for that for all of eternity. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Well, I want to finish this message with a weekly challenge. And I've been looking forward to this particular weekly challenge for a long time because we've been doing this. But I want, to, I want to challenge you this week. I want to unleash a whole round of random acts of generosity on this town like this town has never imagined was going to happen before. And so my challenge is this, and you can change the number. So whatever it is for you, you could change that $20 into a $5, into a $10, whatever it is. Some of you could change it into more, a $50, $100. That doesn't matter. The, the reason I put a number to it is it just kind of shows I'm just talking about small acts of generosity here. But wouldn't it be amazing this week if every one of us, if we prayed, I'm gonna, we're going to pray in just a moment, we're going to listen for just a moment. If we all went out and just listened to the Holy Spirit and said, I'm going to do some random act of generosity this week on someone who is not my family. That, that's the key. It's not my family. But I'm going to do a random act of generosity, whatever that is. It could be paying for someone to drive through. It could be paying for someone's lunch. You want to hear one of the stories from our leadership team was, during this fall while we were doing this, one of the guys on our leadership team, he was at the forks with his son. And it's great to include your kids in this. And he was in the for- at the forks, and they were looking to do uh, one of their weekly random acts of generosity and they were praying, Lord, give us the right people. And they, they went for lunch, and they were at this place, and they saw this young couple ordering lunch, and they felt the Holy Spirit say, go pay for their lunch. So they went and paid for their, their lunch, and the couple said, what are, what are you doing? And right there, just opened a door. See, generosity opens doors to talk to people about Jesus more than anything. And he said, well, this is something uh, you know, our church leadership is doing because this is how Jesus is with us. Well, then it took forever for the food to come out. They had half an hour to talk with this couple and share the gospel with them. Wow. All through a little act of generosity. You know what? This world is desperate for more of the image of God on the earth. This world is desperate for acts of generosity and love. And the more that our country wants to think that we Christians are bigots, the more that we need to open this door with generosity and show them that we love people and God loves them. You know, if we had 3,000, like let's say 3,000 of us from teenagers on up, I don't know, but if if around 3,000 of us this week would do a random act of generosity like that, that would be 3,000 acts of generosity in this town. Do you think that would make a difference? But there's a further thing. I'm, I'm actually going right till Christmas. And any of you who wants to join me, I would challenge you, tw- again, $20. Whether it's 5 whether it's 10 whether it's 20 doesn't matter. The point is small. But my challenge would be to you. We've got four weeks, um, you know, of, you know till, till Christmas. And if we each did an act of generosity like that every week, that would be 3,000 people. Time, if we did it all four times, that would be 12,000 acts of generosity. Do you think the Holy Spirit would open some hearts? Do you think that would be a testimony? Do you think that would make a difference uh, this December, this Christmas? I think it, it would. And uh, I'm excited to see what God's going to do. And I'm going to give you a moment to listen about that in a moment. And then the other thing is, I would ask you to, to, to listen about the Christmas offering this week. And it's coming up next weekend. And you, you're seeing some of the stories. We're going to show you more stories again next weekend. But pastors' lives are being changed. Churches are being changed. 
And like I said before, the time has never been more urgent for a country. We need, we need to not be one church. We need to be many churches, praying and being renewed. And so ask Jesus, Lord Jesus, I want to give. I don't want to just give a loony or a toony. I want to I be a part of this. I want to sacrificially give and get to be a part of the adventure that you're doing. So I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Maybe there's a random act of generosity. Maybe there's someone you know right now that you're, you can do an act of generosity to. Maybe God wants to speak to you about the offering next week. Let's just give him a moment to speak. Lord Jesus, all, of, all that we have is yours to begin with. And it's so amazing to me that when we just give you what's yours already, you reward us for giving you your stuff. I pray that you would speak into our hearts as we listen here just for a moment. Is there a person in our life that we need to do a random act of generosity and surprise them and encourage them this week? Is there a stranger, a creative act? Is there something you want to say to us for the offering next week? Lord, we just want to take a moment and listen. Lord Jesus, it's our joy to be generous for you. We look forward to living for you this week and seeing what you're going to do next week at the offering. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.